right, as the kids make their way back, good morning again. Um, we are going to be in the third week, uh, we are in the third week of Advent. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians 4. Um, again, real quick, if you're not familiar with Advent, it's part of the calendar that the church kind of throughout history has used to help us mark time. And the thing is, we might see that as kind of weird with church, but we mark time this way in the rest of our lives. We celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and football season and fall. And so our lives are marked kind of in cycles of time. And uh, the church calendar is just another way to do that, that basically centers our life on Jesus and his earthly life. And so there's kind of five major uh, cycles or seasons in the church calendar. Um, So as we said, we're in week three of Advent, and traditionally, uh, week three is known as um, Gaudet Sunday or Joy Sunday. Uh, And, you know, there's some flexibility as to how you're going to do hope, then peace, or peace, then hope, and then, but week three is always, almost always uh, joy. And so, um, you know, this morning I got here and I got some uh, news about a couple of our members who are dealing with a death in the family, and then we had a death earlier in the week. Uh, someone in the family, and there was some crazy stuff that happened in the neighborhood last night, and I just thought, it's just kind of like, really, Lord, this is the joy week? Uh, but that's kind of real life, isn't it? That we experience joy and pain, and it's mixed, and it's all kind of just there, and so um, this is where we are, and we want to be faithful where we are, and so um, this, this, is, this is the week we find ourselves in. So we've used this metaphor in the past of kind of uh, Advent is like the little kid looking out the window waiting for someone to come. And week three of Advent is like the headlights come over the hillside and they get excited. And I was thinking about another way to illustrate this this week. And, and I hope this isn't like too much. But I came home and as I started to put the key in the door, even before I got there, my dog started to go a little nuts. Like he started to get excited that I was there. And I just had this thought, I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or just my weird mind, and I thought, this is a little bit like the expectation of Advent on week three. We, like we, we can see that it's coming soon, and so we get excited. And again, the metaphor kind of falls apart because I'm not calling us dogs, that's not my point. But, you know, I don't know if you have a dog, but mine, it's like he, he already is getting excited before I close the car door. And I think that's a little bit uh, of the spirit of this third week where... We, we can't quite see Jesus yet, and yet the Bible says we don't see him, and yet we love him, and we long for him, and so our excitement level kind of hits this high note, uh, and so I just thought maybe that's a bit of a helpful example of how much our joy and the presence and the coming of Jesus are tied together. So we said Philippians 4, we're going to get there, but let me set this up from what we just read in uh, Isaiah 35. Um, and so in Isaiah 35, we get this very poetic picture. I don't know if you picked up on that, but it was poetry. And this is what happens when God shows up to save, which is what Christmas is about. God showing up to reconcile and redeem all things. And so if you want to flip to Isaiah 35, you can uh, or scroll there. But keep your finger in Philippians 4 because that's where we're going to get back to. Um, but I just want to notice a few things as it pertains to the idea of joy from this text in Isaiah 35. So in verse one and two of this text, we see promises of what's going to happen when God finally does show up fully and finally. Listen to verses three and four again. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Now, 
One of the most kind of important and poignant ways that we live out our faith in God, that it affects our life, is by simple encouragement to one another. That's part of what marks us as a family in the church. We remind one another that God is coming and that he is going to make all things right. That's what the Advent uh, theme of, of, of arrival and expectation is helping us to see. Now, um, he, he's going to bring justice, and most importantly, he's going to finally and fully save sinners like you and me. And we look to that in his coming kingdom. Now, I wonder how many of us can relate to the feeling that was described here of feeling like we have weak knees and feeble hands sometimes. And I don't mean physically, although maybe that's the case, but I mean kind of on the soul level that our knees are weak and our hands feel weak and we just, it's too much. I, I know that some of us in this room are, are definitely feeling that more often. Some of us who are not in this room but would have been this morning are totally feeling that. I know that I felt that. I, I picked someone up from the airport last night, and on the way back, she said, how are you doing? And I just kind of in a moment of honesty said, I'm, I'm just kind of tired and sad. Uh, and, I, and I think part of that was what's going on this week. And then, uh, and then after that, we had a car explode and burn in the neighborhood, like down the street. And so I walked down there, and I was just struck with the thought, I mean, this is wild, for one. I'm watching this car burn. But number two, I just thought, somebody doesn't have a car now. And it's like about to be Christmas. I wonder if they have kids. I wonder if they have to get to a job. You know, and I just was like, man, it's just always something. And so um, this is the kind of reason why, uh, just as a little shameless plug, we're going to be having another Blue Christmas service Saturday night uh, this next weekend. And so I want to just invite you to make that uh, if you can. Uh, those of you watching online, we're going to do our best to stream it as well. Um, and so just if you need space to process some of those feelings, just want to invite you to uh, that that's what that service is for. Now, listen to that sentence again from verse four. He will come to save you. He will come to save you. It doesn't say he might, it says he will. And, and I think we need to hear that, that he is coming to save his people. But now listen to how this chapter that we just read from in Isaiah ends. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. We have a song about that. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's from the Psalm, but same theme. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, I, that's from the ESV, which is a, a pretty good translation overall. But in this text, the NIV actually renders the last part of that verse a little bit better. Listen to the way the NIV says it. Instead of they shall obtain gladness and joy, the NIV reads that joy will overtake them. Now, if you've experienced joy, the only way, the only way I can like acknowledge the way this feels is a couple of experiences in my life. Uh, one of them was adoption day. Uh, one of them is my wedding day. But honestly, another one that I have experienced where joy just like overtakes you is when I was a kid and I played sports and we won a little championship. I don't know if you've watched sports. Um, I remember I was in the room with Rod when the Capitals finally won the Stanley Cup and he was overcome with joy, right? And what's fun, one of the things that's captivating about sports when you love sports and you watch the playoffs is that moment when the clock hits zero or they score that winning touchdown or whatever it is, or uh, the best is when a guy hits a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth in game seven, right? Those things, and everybody that was on the winning side goes nuts. They're overcome with that joy. And you see these grown men who make millions of dollars act like children, 
And for some reason, we love it because we want to experience that kind of joy that grabs hold of us. So think back to when you've had that experience and just understand that that's a shadow of the joy that will overcome us when God returns fully. Now, it also says not only that joy will overtake us, but that all our sorrow and all our sighing will also, as the scriptures say, flee from us. I love that idea of our sorrows being like sighing. Like, I don't know if you, I do it unintentionally sometimes. And people around me, my wife will be like, why are you like taking so many deep breaths? Ever, and anybody ever asked, like, why are, you taking, why are you sighing so much? And you don't even realize how anxious or sad you even might be. And you're just taking those deep breaths. What would it be like if that feeling of that soul-level sighing was banished forever? That we don't experience that anymore, and it's replaced with overtaking, and as some theologians like to say, ever-increasing joy. That's what I want. I want that. I look forward to that. That's what the expectation I have of life with God is in the kingdom. And I, I want that kind of joy where troubles and anxiety literally run away from me. That there's not enough space in me for those. But it seems like my ability to be joyful is always clouded by the experiences of this life. Somebody in our family passes away. Somebody that we know has a family member that passes. Somebody that we do know passes away. A kid in our neighborhood just tests positive for COVID. A car explodes at midnight. And you think, what in the heck is happening in my neighborhood? And all this, the tornadoes are shredding up parts of our country. People are without a house. I look at that stuff and I just have t such a different perspective now that I'm a little older. I have kids in the house and I just think, my gosh, that baby is going to be hungry in like an hour. And their, their house is gone. What are they going to do? Where do they get diapers? Where do they get water? You know, and so how do we have joy in that? And in those moments, I seem to forget that God is coming and that somehow I can rest in that. Now, in the book of Philippians, we get this little section in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, where we see this exhortation to live in the kind of joyfulness that we actually saw a picture of in Isaiah, and then thankfully we receive some instruction. So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4. Now, this text in Philippians 4 is a very famous section of the Bible. I'm sure you've heard it before. There's a real cheesy song that I used to know as a kid. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, right? You guys remember that one? No? Just me? Okay. I'm not doing the rest of it. Uh, um, I knew that song as a kid. You've probably, maybe you have like a coffee cup with this. It's famous like bumper sticker, back of people's windows, totally out of context. But look at Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, in the book of Philippians, this is actually the third time that Paul gives this command or this exhortation to rejoice. 
Um, in, in chapter 2, verse 18, he tells the readers that they should be glad and rejoice with him. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then here in chapter 4, uh, verse 4, he tells them to rejoice always. Now, the point of this, what, what, why is he saying that so often? Paul is trying to communicate the, the force of the joy that he's getting at, that he's talking about. He wants to exhort the Philippians to be filled with joy. He, he wants them to understand that joy isn't, isn't less than happiness, but it's something more than it. That, that there is a defiant nevertheless in the face of this difficult world. That yes, this thing happened, and yes, I am sad about it, and like Paul, I'm perplexed. I don't get it. Why does this keep happening? But nevertheless, Lord, I, I find my joy in you. Your, your joy is my strength. And again, it's good to be reminded, Paul's not writing this from like a mansion or a fancy hotel. He's writing this from prison. And he's likely going to be executed not very long from here. He's awaiting his death at the hands of the Roman Empire. So you can't write this off as, well, you know, Paul's just, ah, he's having a great life. He doesn't know about my problems. But you don't know about his problems. right? Paul's not writing this from a good place. He's in a tough spot. And yet this is still what he wants the church to know. And he wants us to know. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now what Paul's doing there by saying again, I will say, he's almost answering preemptively the question that he knows is probably gonna come. Like, have you ever done that where you set your sentence up by saying, I know it's hard to believe this, but, and then you start to speak. That's kind of the language that Paul is using here. He, he's repeating it. He said, I know you're gonna find this hard to believe, but rejoice in the Lord always. I'm gonna say it again, rejoice. Right? He, he wants us to know, uh, if he was writing this on social media, he would say, rejoice in the Lord, always don't at me. Right? Just do it. Don't question it, just rejoice. The other thing to notice is the lack of loopholes. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when things are good, or rejoice in the Lord when things are hard. He says always, all the time, rejoice in the Lord. Notice he, he says that, all of our life should be filled with this rejoicing. So he wants to make sure that the Philippian church understands that this is not an option that we participate in from time to time, but that it's a marker of our life. It's a constant state of our hearts. One commentator said this about joy and rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing is a basic and constant orientation of the Christian life, the fruit and the evidence of a relationship with the Lord. So, so, rejoicing and joy is like part of who we are now. It's part of our DNA because it's, it comes from what God has done in the past, what he is doing now in your life, even when it's hard to see what God is up to and what you know by faith and trust in what he has said he will do in the future. This is why we make space in our life daily, or we should be making space in our life daily for the practices we've spoken about recently, like silence and solitude in the scriptures so that we can hear from God and his word and in quiet prayer about who he is, what he's done, and that we need to be reminded. So often in the Old Testament, the Israelites are just reminded about what God has done. Hey, do this because the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt. Don't forget. The Lord your God split the Red Sea. Don't forget. This is what he did for you. Don't forget it. And so that's what we need as well. And so as 
part of our participation in our movement, the Alliance, and as part of a practice starting on January 2nd and a few Sundays, we're going to be following along with our Alliance family for 40 days of prayer. We did this last year as well. We're going to do it again this year. And during that time, we're going to make some space midweek to fast and to pray. Now, it's all invitation. Don't ever hear guilt or shame or pressure from me. This is just an invitation that on Wednesday nights, I want to invite you to make it. If you can be here, be here. We're going to listen to the Lord. We're going to pray through some things. And on Wednesdays, uh, maybe part of the day or all of the day or one meal, you can fast in order to prepare yourself for that. But for those 40 days on those Wednesday nights and on those Sundays, it works out to about six of each We're going to be focused on prayer and on reawakening to the things of God. And so details on that are coming soon. Make sure you look in your emails and, and, you know, I'll tell you about that at the end of our service a little bit more. But that's what we're going to do starting in January to kick off kind of the next year along with our Alliance family. Now, I don't need to remind you of this, but it bears repeating. In this life, Jesus said there's going to be trouble. There's going to be loss. There's going to be pain. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be just reminded over the last couple day, days, a couple instances, there's going to be death that, that we just can't understand. Those are just the realities of living in a world broken by sin. But, but there's an even deeper reality than that. If you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the way it's talked about, and there's a deeper magic that the evil of this world doesn't even know about. And that's a metaphor. I'm not saying anything about magic, Okay. But there's a reality that God in Jesus has been reconciling people back to himself through faith in Jesus. So so how can we rejoice in any circumstance? Well, if we've been redeemed and reconciled, we remember what David remembered in Psalm 40. He said this, God drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog, he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. That's how we rejoice in any circumstance. You need to know that in the heart of your heart, in in your heart of hearts. And so I would encourage you, memorize passages like that. Maybe memorize that passage from Psalm 40, so that when life gets hard, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because Jesus has saved us, we can say what Peter said in, in 1 Peter 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, as we said earlier, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So not only can we rejoice because Jesus has saved us, but we also can rejoice if we'll pay attention and look for it, we can rejoice in other things that we forget that God has provided for us. Like, I woke up in a warm bed today. My car wasn't exploded and on fire. Rejoice. That sounds funny, but serious. Rejoice. I had something to eat today that didn't cause me sickness. I drank clean water. Rejoice. God has provided this. I have people in my life who love me. Rejoice in that. This is a minor one, but iced coffee is back today at church. Rejoice. Okay? All of these are beautiful provisions of God that are worth rejoicing in. But we have to also know that these are just a shadow of the rejoicing that we will do because of what God is going to provide in the coming kingdom. We can rejoice in the Lord always. Now, what does that lead to? How, How does that... How how does that end up? 
The second command that Paul gives, I think is a command and exhortation, but it's also this outworking of what joy leads to. Look at verse five. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So he's reminding you of a couple things. God is closer than you think. And so because you have joy in him and he's almost here, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now we read that word reasonableness and we think intellectual ability. Like let your reasoning be known to, but that's not what Paul is saying. The word that's translated reasonableness in, in that translation has been translated a few different ways. In the 1525 Tyndale translation, that word is translated as softness. And I think that's a way better way to translate it for our ears. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Let your softness be known to everyone. The point that Paul is making is that when you're a person who lives with this joy that is filling you, your disposition towards other people will end up being one of gentleness, of softness. Now, here's the flow of the way Paul makes the argument. He goes from the command to rejoice to the command to be gentle. And so that tells us that the most immediate outworking of a joyful, joy-filled soul is a gentle disposition towards others. Now, we know this from our own life, right? Think of the grumpiest person in your family or the grumpiest, grouchiest, harshest person you know. Would you categorize that person as a joyful person? No, because it doesn't work that way, right? We know this from experience. Inward joy leaks out as outward gentleness to other people. That's what Paul is exhorting and encouraging here. Be filled with joy so that your softness, your gentleness can be known to others. So let me practice what the text is saying here. And instead of uh, you know, trying to make a bunch of points, which is kind of what I'm talking against, let me just ask a couple questions. And then if those questions prompt something for each of us personally, let the Holy Spirit do his job of revealing our own need to come to Jesus. Let me ask these questions. Is it possible that we're being discipled by our current moment of dishonor and harshness more than we're being discipled by Jesus and his spirit of gentleness. Is that possible? Is it possible that we're being, to use different language that we don't use very often, is it possible that we're being colonized by that very culture that we're trying to reach? That we're becoming more like the people we're to reach them the other way around? Is it possible that our normal in terms of how we relate to other people and the way that we treat them is not the normal of the kingdom of heaven? That, that what feels like normal is actually worldly instead of kingdomly. How, how did Jesus offer himself to others? What was Jesus' description of himself? His only description of himself. Come to me for I am gentle and lowly of spirit. Now, did Jesus speak the truth? Yes. Did he get frustrated at things? Yes. At his disciples? Yes. How long do I have to be with you? He said to them. But overall, his life was known as gentle, kind, and we will see set towards joy. There's a lot of scholars who say that Jesus was probably pretty funny and fun to be around. He had a great sense of humor. I think maybe part of the reason we're not filled with more gentleness 
inducing joy or joy inducing gentleness is that many times we miss the small reminder that Paul gives at the end of verse five, which fits so well with this season of advent of expectation. He says the way to think about this is the Lord is standing in the doorway. Like he's almost, he's here, he's close. The Lord is near. This is the anchor for the commands that Paul gives in this text. Our joy and our gentleness are rooted in, they're grounded in this reality that we believe that God is close. This makes us different from many other religions. God is not distant and far off. He's close. He comes to us. Right? We just say he has come for us, this Jesus. And so the nearness of God gives us reason to rejoice, which leads us to be a gentle, joyful, spirit-filled people. Does this mean, though, that God is close to us or that he's coming soon? And the answer to that is yes. It's both. Paul, Paul probably had both of these realities in view as he wrote this. The Lord is constantly with his people. He fills us. We're reminded of this all the time in the scriptures. This is part of why we take communion every week. So we can be reminded that God is close to us, that he indwells us, that we are his. But we also remember that he's coming soon, right? The end of the communion meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's both and. It's already and it's not yet, but we, with expectation, want it. His return is imminent, and so this imminent return is what causes our joy to break joy to break out in our souls, right? If you know you're about to go on a great vacation, you can put up with a lot of stuff that last week of work before vacation, because you're like, ah, it's all right, vacation's coming. And in a way, that's kind of the expectation we're talking about with Advent. It's okay, this... What happens here, it's painful and it hurts, but as Paul says, there's coming a day not long from now that the suffering of this present world is nothing to be compared to the joy that is coming. Now at the beginning of verse 6, we see Paul give an instruction not to worry and a command on what to do instead. Here's verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. So that's pretty clear. Don't be anxious about anything. Now I wish that was easy to follow. Like, it's not a command like, don't lie, that I can just not lie. I sometimes can't control that anxiety. It just happens. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, this is a time when knowing the context of when this is written for Paul can add some weight to the words that we actually see here. He is imprisoned, probably in Rome, and his execution at the hands of unjustly of the state of the Roman Empire is going to happen soon. It's imminent. So, so don't think Paul's saying, don't worry, be happy flippantly. That's not what's happening here. Paul's life is in question, and yet he's instructing the Philippians, listen, don't worry. Something better is coming. The fact that Paul instructs them to literally stop worrying about anything. That's the command if we were to directly translate it. Stop worrying. Right? Easy one to follow not. It gives the implications then, if, if he's telling them that, it gives the implication that the Philippian Christians are worried. So we can relate to the Christians in this text, right? They must be anxious if he's telling them, stop being anxious. Being a Christian in Philippi brought with it a lot of troubles. It brought poverty, hunger. They were pushed out of the marketplace and out of the, the, the market square. False teachers are drawing people away from the faith. And then there's this unfriendly Roman empire uh, that are part of all of the lives of these Christians. And yet Paul tells them, don't worry about any of that stuff. God is coming soon. 
So Paul's simply commanding them in the same way that Jesus himself taught. This is an example of what we see over and over in the New Testament, where we're told to teach others what we've been taught. Paul has been taught this. Now he's teaching the Philippian church. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches that actually worry is a very pagan trait. When he tells them how to pray, he says, don't pray like the pagans who don't know that they have a father in heaven. And so then Jesus says in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now Jesus just hit everything I get anxious about. What am I, where is the next provision coming from? Even down to the little dumb stuff, like what am I going to wear today? I'm worried about it, right? Don't worry about that stuff. That's how I start every morning. Where am I going to do? No. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Rhetorical question, yes. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? Rhetorical question, yes, you are. And which of you, by being anxious, I love when Jesus asks these questions, can add a single hour to the span of your life? Rhetorical question, the answer is none. None of us, by worrying, can actually change anything. It's just worry. You actually can reduce the span of your life, though, but you can't add to it by worrying. And so Jesus is saying, don't you get it? Look at the birds. They're taken care of. Don't you know that you're so much more valuable than they are because you're made in the image of your father? Of course he cares more about you than he cares about the birds. And he knows what is best, so he's going to take care of you. Paul's simply echoing the teaching that Jesus gave back in the text in Philippians. He's simply exhorting the Philippians to believe and to trust in the same things as any other Christian at any other time in history. So this means for you and for me, the commands of both Jesus and Paul are for us. They're for us. But we should not be a people marked by anxiety about tomorrow and worry. That's not what marks us. Remember, Jesus said that we can't add an hour of time to our life by worrying, which makes a lot of sense out of why hurry that we just covered is such a hard thing. You can't add any more time to your life by hurrying either, which is kind of a form of living anxiously, isn't it? So Paul then goes on at the end of the verse to give us instruction on what to do instead of worrying. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. One of the things that distinguishes Christian prayer is thankfulness. That we thank God for everything. We realize that everything we have has come to us by the hand of God. This is how we teach our children to pray, isn't it? One of the first things that our kids will mimic in prayer is thank you, God, for the food. Thank you, God, for that. And they'll just thank God for, have you ever been with a kid at Thanksgiving dinner? Like the turkey is getting cold. Thank you, God, for the squirrel outside. And thank you, God. And right, it's annoying when they do that, but there's something about that that's also beautiful, that thankfulness that they have. And that marks Christian prayer as unique. Of course, most importantly, we're thankful for our eternal adoption into the family of God, our salvation that have come by the grace of God through faith alone. So we have everything in the universe to be thankful for. We're taken care of. We're good to go. And so Paul, in the book of Colossians, another letter he wrote, teaches us that everything we do should be 
kind of dripping in thanksgiving. Listen to what he says in Colossians 3. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What? Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So everything you do is of eternal consequence. Thank you, Father, for this good provision you've given me. So instead of worry, the posture of our hearts should be this thankful posture of thanksgiving that's filled with joy that lets God in on what we're worried about. Right? This is why God invites us to tell him, not because he doesn't know, he's omniscient, he knows everything. Why does he invite us? That's for us, that's not for him. The invitation to tell God what you're worried about is for you, it's not for God to find out as if he doesn't know. It's for you to be honest, not just with him, but to be honest and present with yourself in that moment of prayer. God, this is really what's going on in my soul. Instead of the the pre-made platitudes that we often pray to God, we pray to God what we think he wants us to pray instead of what's actually in there. And God is saying, bring that stuff that's actually in there to me. We get to pray through what's bothering us, what's hurting us. And in that moment of prayerfully, thankfully bringing our request to him, we cast all our cares upon him and we get to taste the reality that he does care for us. He does care for us. He cares about the little things and he cares about the big things. He cares about all the things that you think are not worthy of his time and all the things that you think maybe are too big for him to handle. He cares about all of those Now, we're going to see from Paul the results of this thankful, joyful disposition where we pray and we make our requests made known to God in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. I would like my heart to be guarded. Many times I, you know, you feel that there's an attack on my heart. Somebody sends a text or you see something or you hear some news and, and your heart goes to a place that you don't want it to go. I want, I want my heart to be guarded and my mind to be guarded in Jesus. And Paul is saying that this is a result. It's not the kind of peace that's just superficial. It's not just a lack of conflict. But Paul says that this is the peace of God. So, so what does he mean? I think he is referring back to what he knows about Jesus and the peace that Jesus leaves that John records in John 14. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the peace that comes from knowing and trusting in Jesus' work on our behalf. This peace transcends all the rational reasons we might not have to feel joy and peace. And yet this is the promise to us. I wonder if you've ever been around someone who is walking with Jesus in the moment of pain. And you're like, how in the world are you so filled with peace right now? Well, that's the peace that surpasses understanding. That transcends our logical ability to understand things that comes from trusting in the promises of God and knowing that there's a kingdom that's coming. Notice that nowhere in this text is the peace that flows from this joyful disposition dependent on whether or not the requests you made to God are granted or not. Like, notice that. God isn't promising you that you're going to get everything you want. This is one of the hardest lessons we're working through right now in my house. You're not going to get everything you want. Right? Little ones struggle with that. The reality is, Adults struggle with that too. That's not the promise. God isn't saying if you follow me, you'll get everything you want in this life and then you'll be filled with peace. No. 
Instead, the promise is that you'll get what you need, and what you need is his presence. And you will get that. What you need is his peace that surpasses your understanding, that transcends your logic. This is why Paul says that this will guard your hearts. No matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on in life, God will guard your heart with his endless peace if you will just bring your request to him and remember with thanksgiving all that he has done for you. So as we think about joy at this time of year and the excitement of being that much closer to Christmas, and I don't know if Christmas is going to be amazing for you or it's going to be a hard one. I can tell you from my family, it's going to be kind of a strange one. We're going to have a a funeral two days before Christmas. I, I don't know what that's going to mean and what that's going to feel like. I haven't walked this road yet. But what I know is that I'm in a community of faith that is being called to be known for our thankful, joyful hearts, which create this gentleness in us. That we long to be a people who our reasonableness, our softness is what's known to others because we're so filled with the joy of the Lord and his strength. God isn't saying that we don't have needs, but he is saying that if we learn to pursue a joyful, thankful disposition and trust him in such a way that our hearts are guarded against the temptation to think that either he's not good or that he doesn't care because he is good and he does care. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is just so much going on from the big national things like tornadoes to our individual lives and people in our church who are hurting and who are feeling lost. We ask that we would bring all that to you, that your peace would guard us and that we would be a people who are filled with joy. And we ask that somehow that joy would lead to a gentleness in us that would be made known to others so that they might ask for the reason of the hope that's in us. Like, how are we so joy-filled in the midst of this? And we would get to share about the love we've experienced from you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.